Father, what a, a joyous privilege it is for us to come in your name and hear the word of God. I pray that each one here would drink in your word as if Jesus Christ himself had walked up to the front and started to teach us. Lord, because this book is your communication to us. It's your, your love letter to us. It's your unfolding of yourself to us. And Lord, as you unfold yourself to us, there's life. So would you give power upon your word today, both to myself as I teach and to your congregation as they hear. May the Spirit of God be working in our midst today to bring about his intended result that Jesus Christ would be known and glorified amongst us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we began a study of the life of Joseph. And we were focusing last week on the fact that Joseph was an innocent sufferer. We looked at Joseph in three different settings. We saw him in his parents' home, in Potiphar's home, and in the prison home. In chapter 37, we saw him in his parents' house. We saw his relationship to his father. Jacob, his father, loved Joseph. He honored Joseph. And he sent Joseph on a mission. And we saw Joseph's relationship to his brothers. His brothers hated him. They envied him. They plotted against him. They stripped him. And they sold him into slavery. And then we saw Joseph moving into his next realm, which was uh, Potiphar's house. Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard, bought him as a slave. And Joseph, in that condition, resisted strong temptations from Potiphar's wife, who solicited him and sought to seduce him day after day. And when she was unable to do that, she made up a lie, a fabricated lie against him, and said that Joseph had tried to rape her. And so when Potiphar got home, he threw Joseph in prison. So Joseph resisted strong temptations and he endured false accusations. And when he got into prison, he was being, he was suffering for something that he had not done. And while he was there, he was in the prison with two other criminals beside him, a cupbearer and a baker. And both of these men had dreams and they told Joseph their dreams and they wanted to know what they meant. And Joseph interpreted those dreams. And to the cupbearer, he pronounced restoration and blessing. And to the baker, he pronounced judgment and death. And in all of these things, Joseph is a Christ figure in the Old Testament. He shows forth aspects of Jesus. He shows how Jesus is the innocent sufferer. The father loved his son, honored his son sent his son on a mission of mercy to redeem his brethren. When Jesus came into the world, his brothers, that's you and I, especially the Jewish brethren, hated him. They envied him. They plotted against him to kill him. They stripped him at the crucifixion. And we also find Judas selling him for 30 pieces of silver. In addition to that, when you get into Potiphar's house, you see parallels. You see that just as Potiphar resisted strong temptations, so Jesus had to resist strong temptations from Satan, who took him out in the wilderness and promised him all the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down and serve him. We also find Jesus having to endure these false accusations that were made against him, the lies, uh, the, the false witnesses that came forth and testified lies against the Son of God. And finally, Jesus, 
suffered for crimes that he had not committed himself. He died there on a cross between two men, two criminals. To the one he said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. You'll be restored. To the other, he left him in his sins and he died as far as we know, unrepentant and went to hell. And there's going to come a day when Jesus will be the one who pronounces either eternal salvation to some or eternal damnation to others. So Jesus is just like Joseph. He's the innocent sufferer. But today we're going to look at a different side of Jesus. We're going to see him as the exalted Lord. In fact, if you look in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, it speaks about the Old Testament prophets and how they predicted both the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Well, we've seen the sufferings of Christ last Sunday. This week we're going to look at the glories to follow. We're not looking at Jesus now in his humiliation. We're seeing him now in his exaltation. We're not focusing on his sufferings. We're focusing on his glories that followed his sufferings. So let's open up to Genesis 41. And we're going to look at first Joseph, who was the ruler of Egypt, and then secondly, the people of Egypt. So let's focus, first of all, on Joseph, the ruler of Egypt. And there's four aspects here I want you to see. Number one, Joseph was brought out of the dungeon. Look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. Now what's going on? Why was he hurriedly brought out of the dungeon? Well, he was hurriedly brought out of the dungeon because Pharaoh had had a couple of dreams just the night before. And these dreams were so vivid and so impacting on him that he woke up. The first dream was he saw these seven fat, sleek cows coming up out of the Nile River. And then they were grazing and feeding in the lush marsh there on the side of the Nile River. And after them, seven ugly, gaunt, skinny cows came out of the same Nile River and ate up the fat cows. And Pharaoh saw that and he woke up wondering what in the world was that. He goes back to sleep and he dreams again. And this dream, he sees a stalk with seven ears of grain on it. And the ears of grain are plump and full and healthy. And then he sees another stalk come up with seven ears of grain, but these are sickly and skinny, scorched by the east wind. And the seven sickly grains ate up the seven fat grains. And when they were done, the the skinny grains didn't look any bigger or any different than they did originally. And Pharaoh woke up and he thought, this has got to be something of significance. I wonder if God is trying to speak to me. So he gathers all of his wise men and his magicians and he tells them about these dreams and he says, now you guys tell me what it means. And none of them could tell him. Nobody knew the interpretation of the dreams. Until one of the court officials, the cupbearer, said, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, I know somebody who might be able to interpret that dream. Because see, I was down in prison a couple of years ago, and there was this Hebrew slave that was in prison with me. And I told him my dream, and he knew exactly what it meant. In fact, everything he said came true to the T. Why don't you see if that guy can tell you the interpretation of your dreams? So that's why Joseph was hurriedly brought out of the dungeon to stand before Pharaoh. There is a time when Jesus Christ was hurriedly brought out of the dungeon of sufferings because they had finally been completed. 
Do you remember that Jesus was hanging on that cross for about six hours, from about nine in the morning to about three in the afternoon? And right about noon, the Bible says a darkness spread over all the land. Nature itself was testifying the unimaginable horrors of the sufferings of the Holy Son of God on our behalf. But then finally, at the end of that six-hour period of time, Jesus cried out, It is finished! And what did he mean by that? The price had been paid. That's right. Redemption was accomplished. Atonement had been made on our behalf. He had drank the last drop of the cup of the wrath of God. And it was finished. It was over. And because his sufferings were over, just like Joseph's sufferings came to an end, he was hurriedly brought out of that place of suffering. But the second thing we see here about Joseph in verse 14 is that he was brought before Pharaoh. Not only was he brought out of the dungeon, he was brought into the presence of the king himself. Look at it in verse 14. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Now the pharaohs were always clean-shaven. And so anyone who was brought into their presence must also be clean-shaven. Now imagine what Joseph must have looked like. He'd probably been in prison for about 12 years. He's not going to have any shaving implements in there. So he's got this long, scraggly beard. He's probably very dirty. His clothes are tattered rags. And all of a sudden, in comes a messenger. Joseph, you're not going to believe this, but the Pharaoh himself requests that you come out of prison and stand before him right now. Hurry, you've got to get ready. And so he gives him a change of clothes. He bathes himself. He, he shaves himself. And he's brought into the very presence of the Pharaoh. So he exchanged his tattered rags for clothes of glory. And that also pictures for us something of Jesus. He exchanged his rags of humiliation, of, of humility. When Jesus walked the earth, he was humble. He humbled himself by becoming a man, by taking on the nature such as you and I possess. But he exchanged all of those humbling rags for the, for the close of glory because he was glorified. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God. He sat down next to his father. He was presented before the presence of his father. In Hebrews chapter 9, Let me find it for you. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. The Bible says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus himself, after his sufferings were over, ascended to the right hand of God, overcoming death, showing his power and his victory, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, Jesus, let's back it up. Joseph was brought out of the dungeon. Joseph was brought before the king. Thirdly, we find Joseph was set over all the land of Egypt. I want you to take a look at verse... Let's start in verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, and whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all of this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, 
All my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then if you take a look at verse 44, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Now what's going on here? Well, when Joseph was brought into the Pharaoh's presence, the Pharaoh told him his dreams. And Joseph said, Well, I know what that dream means, king. God has given me the interpretation. And he told him that what was going to happen is there would be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. And because the famine was going to be so severe, he said, you've got to prepare for it. You need to set a man over all the kingdom of Egypt who will begin to tax the people 20%. And after seven years, put all of these grains in storehouses so that when the famine hits, you'll have some grain to be able to dispense to the people. So that's exactly what the Pharaoh decided to do. And he said, well, where can I find a man more wise and discerning than this Hebrew slave right here? And so it it sounds incredible. In the morning, Joseph was a condemned criminal in a dungeon. In the afternoon, he finds himself in the palace, second in command, ruling over the entire kingdom of Egypt. It's amazing, isn't it? And I want you to notice certain things about his rule. The first one is that he was set over all the land of Egypt. And that is emphasized over and over in your Bible. Verse 40. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Verse 41. See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Verse 43. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. So over and over, several times, God is seeking to make the point that Joseph was set over all the land of Egypt. It wasn't just the commoners and the peasants that he was set over. He was set over the aristocracy and the wealthy and the leaders within the nation of Egypt. He was set over everybody except for the Pharaoh himself. And you know, Jesus Christ has been elevated and he has been appointed ruler over all of the heavens and the earth, none accepted except for God himself. Did you know that? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, the Bible says, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all, all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you see how many times he says all and every in that passage? He's making a point. There isn't anything, there isn't any one exempt from the kingship of Jesus Christ. He is over all of God's kingdom today. So, the Pharaoh sets him over all the land of Egypt. The next thing we we see about Pharaoh, here in Genesis chapter 41, is that he gave him a signet ring. Look at verse 42. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. Now this also is an amazing thing. See, a signet ring was not just any old ring. 
This was the ring by which the king of Egypt would enact law and seal important documents. In other words, if there was a law that needed to be signed, he wouldn't sign his name. He'd take off his ring and press it into that soft wax. And when the wax hardened forever, there would be the verification that the king of Egypt has enacted this document into law. So the signet ring was a symbol of the king's authority. And do you know how much authority the Pharaoh had? He had all authority, unquestioned authority, absolute authority. He could do anything that he wanted to do. Nobody could stop him. Nobody could resist him. Nobody could even question him. And here the Pharaoh takes off that ring and he hands it to Joseph. And he says, you use this now. So what's he saying? I have given you all of my authority to accomplish my will within the kingdom of Egypt. And Bell should be going off in your head about now. Because that's exactly what the Father did for Jesus Christ. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Jesus said. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. All authority. Where? In heaven and on earth. Is there anywhere else? That's it. <laughs> He's got all authority everywhere. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 17... In verse 2, in his prayer to his father, he said, Father, even as you gave him, Jesus, authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So the father gave all authority over all flesh to Jesus for the purpose of giving eternal life to the ones the father had given to him. Or we might take a look at John 5.22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So all judgment has been given to the Son. All authority has been given to the Son. Jesus has it all. In fact, Ephesians 1.11 says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. You see, just as Joseph had the signet ring, so he could carry into completion the Pharaoh's will, God has given Jesus all of His authority to carry into completion the Father's will. So Jesus is acting just like Joseph did. He's acting for the Father in the same role that Joseph acted for the Pharaoh. He's causing to come to pass the Father's will. All the good pleasure of God. And nobody can thwart Christ's hand. Nobody can say to Him, What have you done? They can't question Him. They can't stop Him. They can't resist Him. Jesus' will carries on and is completed perfectly. He's a sovereign. So he set over the land of Egypt, over all the land of Egypt. He's given the signet ring. And then we find in verse 42 that he was clothed in garments of fine linen and they put the gold necklace around his neck and they had him ride in his second chariot. They gave Joseph these outward displays of his preeminence and his exaltation. A gold necklace? Only those who were very 
high in the leadership of Egypt would wear such a thing, this gold necklace and these fine linen garments. And then he put him in his second chariot. So the Pharaoh ran in his chariot right alongside Joseph, the Pharaoh in one chariot, chariot number two, Joseph. And the Pharaoh commanded all the people, bow the knee as they rode through all the land of Egypt. So he gave them these outer prominent displays of glory. And what they did is they validated to all the people of Egypt that the Pharaoh himself had put Joseph in this great exalted position. How else would the people know that Joseph really was an exalted person unless the Pharaoh himself showed them that he was by giving him a gold necklace, giving him fine linen garments, and putting him in a second chariot. And God himself has validated to us, his people, that he has exalted Jesus Christ to his right hand by some outer displays of glory, and he has done that through the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus said that when he left this earth, when he died and rose again, that he was going to send another comforter, which was the Holy Spirit. And in John 7.39 John, in writing his gospel, said that at that time the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, when Jesus was glorified, he was going to send the Spirit. And when the Spirit came, he would validate the exaltation and preeminence, the kingship of Jesus, by his work in the world. And that's what we see happening on the day of Pentecost. Supernatural displays of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people converted in a day. So as the Spirit of God subdues stony hearts and changes hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and changes a person's nature and affection, makes him a new creature, what's he doing? He's validating that Jesus is on the throne, that Jesus has poured out the Spirit. That's the only explanation for something so deep. If you have been a certain kind of person all your life, and then you have been changed by the work of the Holy Spirit, that validates that Jesus is King. And He's poured out His Holy Spirit. Or when we see the Holy Spirit working to restore marriages, or restore families, or to deliver someone from alcoholism, or drug addiction, or to heal physical illness, these are displays that Jesus is King, and He's poured out His Spirit on the world. So Joseph was brought out of the dungeon. He was brought into the Pharaoh's presence. He was set over all the land of Egypt. And then fourthly, he was given a Gentile bride. Notice with me verse 45. Then Pharaoh named Joseph zaphnath paneah and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Notice that the Pharaoh gave Joseph this Gentile bride. Joseph wasn't pursuing Asenath for marriage. Asenath wasn't pursuing Joseph. You might say this was an arranged marriage. Who arranged it? The Pharaoh. The Pharaoh is the one that made the decision of who Joseph was going to marry. You and I are the bride of Christ. We are his church. And did you know that This is an arranged marriage. 
The Father has decided before time that He would give a love gift to Jesus Christ as a reward for His obedience and sufferings. And so what did the Father do? He chose out from this guilty, polluted, depraved, sinful, corrupt world that was sliding into hell. In mercy, He chose out millions of people. A people so vast, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, no man can number them. And He chose them out to be a bride for His Son. It's an arranged marriage. It was a gift of the Father to the Son. In fact, Jesus said in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Did you know there are people in this world today who are given to Jesus? And all of them that the Father gave Jesus are going to come to Jesus. Every single last one of them. So when you share your faith... We're looking for the people that God gave Jesus before the foundation of the world. That's what we're looking for. Later in John chapter 10, Jesus spoke about his sheep who hear his voice. And he says, I know them and they follow me. And the Father who has given them to me is greater than all. There again, Jesus says, these sheep that are in the world, the Father gave them to me. And that's why they believe on me. That's why they follow me. So, this is an arranged marriage. It was a marriage that God gave this bride, this church, to His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice also that this was a Gentile bride. She was a pagan idolatress. Because we're told here, she was the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. Now, the priest of On, I'm sorry, but she's not... (laughs) She didn't grow up knowing about the true and living God. This is the Egyptian pagan religion that she grew up from from probably an infant being indoctrinated into by her father who was a priest of that particular religion. She was given an idolatrous, Gentile, pagan bride. And folks, we have the same sordid past, don't we? The church is no better than Asenoth. In fact, over in Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 17, Paul says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer, in other words, they had been walking this way in the past, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. It's not a very uplifting description, is it? He says, this is how all of us once lived. Notice it. We lived in the futility of our minds. Our minds were darkened. We were excluded from the life of God. We were ignorant, he says. Our hearts were hardened. Our hearts were calloused. We gave ourselves to every practice of sensuality with greediness. So this is the description of us, the bride of Christ. Not a flattering description, but in spite, not because of us. Sometimes you hear people saying, well, you know how valuable you are because Jesus was willing to die for you. No, that's not the truth. He didn't die because we were so valuable. He died because we were so wicked that we needed someone to to pay our debt. You see, the gospel doesn't lift up your self-esteem by saying, that's why 
That's why Christ died, because you were such a valuable person. You see, you're the pearl of great price that he sold everything to buy. No, it's the opposite. We sell everything. Jesus is the pearl. Jesus is the treasure found in the field. So this was our past. All we had to offer to Jesus Christ was our sin and our shame. And when he receives us as his bride, he gives us everything that he has. Notice back here in Genesis chapter 41 how Asnath knew Joseph. Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath Paneah. Now this was an Egyptian name. And we don't know for sure what that name meant, but most of the ancient Hebrew scholars believe that this name meant revealer of secrets. If that's true, it's very interesting. It'd be very Logical, because Joseph was a revealer of secrets to the Pharaoh, wasn't he? He told him what his dream meant. He revealed secrets to him. So it'd be logical that the Pharaoh would give him that name. If that's true, then his wife knew him as a revealer of secrets. And she needed someone to reveal secrets to him. Because she didn't know the true and living God, and Joseph did. And I would like to believe, I'm almost sure this is the case, that Joseph revealed to his wife, who the true and living God was. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God who created the universe. The God who created man. And then set in motion a plan to redeem man when he fell. He unfolded to her the true and living God. Revealer of secrets. And Jesus Christ does that for his church, doesn't he? Jesus said in John 1.18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. So Jesus is the explainer, the revealer of God the Father. He appeared in human form to show us what God was like and to teach us what the Father was like. And not only that, we find at the end of verse 45 that she became His wife. In other words, He shared His glory with this Gentile bride. This pagan, idolatrous woman, he took her into union with himself and shared all that he possessed with her. What did Joseph possess? He possessed, well, first of all, he had a throne now. He lived in the palace with the king. Does the New Testament say anything about sharing a throne with Jesus? He's raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He also had glory. God, or uh, the Pharaoh had given Joseph glory. He told all the people of Egypt to bow their knee to him. And in John 17, 22, Jesus prays that the Father would grant the same glory to all of his people that he had already given to him. And now he possessed all kinds of wealth in addition. And so Joseph gave his wife. They shared in his wealth. And Jesus Christ shares all of the wealth that he possesses with us. How much wealth does Jesus have? How much has he inherited? Hebrews 1.2 says that he inherited all things. Romans 8.17 says that uh, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. So just as a man and a woman when they get married, everything that they jointly own becomes the property of both of them. Well, we didn't own anything, did we? In fact, we were way in debt. <laughs> That's all we had is a, just a horrible debt to offer our 
spouse. But he had billions and billions and billions of dollars, so much it would never run out, never run dry. And when we got married to him, all of our debt was gone, and we had all kinds of money in the bank, so much that we could never exhaust it. Do you know how wealthy you are as a Christian? Do you know how much you have because you are in Christ? Do you know the glory that He is bestowing upon you and will bestow? Do you know the throne that He's called you to? And In fact, even right now in a spiritual positional sense, you sit there in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus with Him. So she became His wife. She shared His glory. Now, let's move from the ruler of Egypt to the people of Egypt. Go with me down to verse 55. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. There are three commands that all of the people of Egypt were given. The first one is, Go to Joseph. First command, go to him. Why were they supposed to go to him? Because they were dying of starvation. Don't make light of this famine. Notice, well, let me find it for you. Several times in this text, we're told the the seriousness of this particular famine. Verse 56, When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Verse 57, The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. Not only just the land of Egypt, all the earth. It was an incredibly severe and intense famine. Now you've seen those Newsreels, haven't you, of famines in places like Africa, where you, they show pictures of these little children with stick arms and legs and distended bellies and skeletal frames. And you see pictures of their mothers weeping because they have no food to give to their children. And the whole villages are starving to death. And there's just desperate conditions. That's what was happening in Egypt. Imagine it that way. People were going to die unless something was done. And when they became hungry and they had no resources and there's no stores to buy food and there's no food out in their fields and they're going hungry and they're waking up hungry day after day, they come to Pharaoh and say, we are dying, we're perishing, what should we do? And the Pharaoh says, go to Joseph. And folks, this world is in a perishing condition. They're perishing for the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall not thirst. The world around us is going to die and go to hell. They're going to perish in their sin unless they get the true bread from heaven. And when a sinner finally wakes up to the fact that they are going to die in their sins, and they go to God and they say, God, what should I do? What does he tell them? Go to Jesus. Nobody else can help you. Your religion can't help you. Your good works, supposed good works, cannot help you. Your church going cannot help you. Your Bible reading and your prayers cannot save you. The only one that can save you is Jesus Christ. And hear me today, if there are people that are outside of Christ, God commands you today to go to Joseph. 
Go to the greater Joseph, who is Jesus Christ, ascended on high at the right hand of God. If you want to be saved from your sins, there is no other place you can go. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There was a time when all the disciples were being tempted to leave Jesus. And Jesus said to them, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And my friend, Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the dispenser of bread. And unless you go to him, you will die. Not just physically, you will die eternally. You will be separated from God in a place of anguish and suffering. Conscious torment for all eternity. That is what the Bible teaches. And so my encouragement, no, not my, just my encouragement, my exhortation, my pleading with you this morning is if you're not a Christian, go to Jesus today. You say, well, how do I do that? How do, he's in heaven. I'm down here. How do I go to Him? You go to Him through faith and prayer. Pour out your heart to Him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's in heaven, but you can call to Him. And the moment you trust Him, you're there. You've been joined to Him. Will you trust in Jesus today? Acknowledge your sin and cry out to Him, Feed me, Lord, or else I perish. The second thing that they were told to do, back in verse 45, or rather verse 43, was that they were to bow to Joseph. Not just go to Joseph. They were to bow to Joseph. All the people of Egypt had to get on their knees and acknowledge the sovereignty and preeminence of this man. This man raised from the dunghill, raised from the pit, from the dungeon, given supreme authority. Bow the knee to this man. And that's God's command. God is commanding all men everywhere to bow the knee today, to repent. You see, to become a Christian doesn't mean you just acknowledge, you know, ABC. Those of you who use the ABC tract, what's the A stand for? Acknowledge Christ, believe, and confess. Simple as ABC. Just acknowledge Christ as Savior, believe in your heart, and confess. You know what they're leaving out of that whole thing that's so important? Repentance. My friend, unless you repent, you'll perish. You need to bow the knee. That's what repentance is all about. Get on your knees. Change your mind. You're not God. He's God. Change your mind about that. Turn from worshiping yourself to worshiping Jesus as the true and living God. Repent of sin. My friend, unless you repent, you'll perish. Bow your knee to Jesus Christ and He will welcome you. He will save you. He will forgive you of every sin you've ever committed. But that's not all. Verse 55 also tells us, Whatever He says to you, you shall do. They were to go to Joseph. They were to bow to Joseph. But they were also to obey Joseph. Whatever he says, do it. Obey him. You can tell when someone has really become a Christian when they start obeying Jesus. Lots of people confess that Christ is the Lord, 
but they don't obey Him. That person's not a Christian. They're saying they are, but they're lying. 1 John 2.4 says that they're lying when they say that. Anybody can say anything. If you are a Christian, you will humble yourself before Christ and you'll begin to obey Jesus. If you say, yeah, I became a Christian, but, you know, I, I know there are things in the Bible that Jesus has told me that He wants me to do, He's commanded me to do them, but I'm just not ready to do those things. Just not ready. Well, then you're not ready to be a Christian. I'm not saying that you're going to be perfect, because you won't. All of us have faults, all of us have failings, we struggle and we fall, don't we? But the direction of a Christian's life is obedience to Jesus Christ. Whatever he says, whatever he says, do it. If he tells you give up drinking, give it up. If he tells you stop taking drugs, stop taking drugs. If he tells you stop sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, stop sleeping with them. If he says don't marry that non-Christian, don't marry them. If he says... Look at your wealth as not your wealth, but my wealth, and use it the way I want it used in this world, then start doing that. If he says, start talking to other people about Jesus Christ and sharing your faith, then start doing it. You see what I'm saying? Whatever he says, do it. (laughs) Because he's the undisputed Lord of the universe, and he has that right. Now maybe you've gone to Jesus... And maybe you have bowed the knee to Jesus, but you're struggling to obey Jesus in some area of your life. You don't have to do this on your own. That's what the Holy Spirit's work is for. He lives inside of those people that have trusted Jesus. And He's willing. In fact, He's excited about giving you the power to overcome sin. And if you'll pray and ask Him to give you the ability to obey Jesus Christ in this hard area of your life, He will be pleased to do it. And He will help you. And you've got a church family that will surround you and pray for you and help you in your efforts towards sanctification and holiness. So bridge people today, let's obey Jesus. Let's bow to Him. And let's do whatever He says for us to do. One of the things that He said to do is go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them everything that He has already commanded us. That is His commission to us as a church. I'm going to have more to say about this when we get into the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. I can't wait for that study. 2 Timothy 2, 2. Don't look it up right now, but look it up when you get home. It's a beauty. God is commanding all of His people to make disciples. Whatever He's commanded you to do, and I don't know what that is, but you do, I hope. Let's ask for grace that we'll be obedient. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you truly save people that are here today? If there are those that don't know you as Savior and Lord and have not bowed the knee, oh, give grace, Lord. Oh, mighty Spirit of God, work in hearts today. Just as you opened up Lydia's heart to respond to the gospel, would you open up hearts today? that sinners might be saved. We also pray that you would enable us to bow the knee and to do what Jesus has commanded. Lord, let us not be stiff-necked and stubborn. 
Let us be pliant, willing to do what you want us to do, O God. Please work in us a heart pleasing unto you, our sovereign master. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory because we know only you could do something so great as this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.